Section 10 of The Story of My Life, Part II, Letters, by Helen Keller and John Albert Macy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section 10, Letters 74 through 87. Letter 74 to Mrs. William Thaw, 37 Concord Avenue, Cambridge, Massachusetts, December 2nd, 1896. It takes me a long time to prepare my lessons because I have to have every word of them spelled out in my hand. Not one of the textbooks which I am obliged to use is in raised print, so of course my work is harder than it would be if I could read my lessons over by myself. But it is harder for teacher than it is for me, because the strain on her poor eyes is so great, and I cannot help worrying about them. Sometimes it really seems as if the task which we have set ourselves were more than we can accomplish but at other times I enjoy my work more than I can say. It is such a delight to be with the other girls and do everything that they do. I study Latin, German, arithmetic, and English history, all of which I enjoy except arithmetic. I am afraid I have not a mathematical mind, for my figures always manage to get into the wrong places. Letter 75 to Mrs. Lawrence Hutton Cambridge, Massachusetts, May 3rd, 1897. You know I am trying very hard to get through with the reading for the examinations in June, and this, in addition to my regular schoolwork, keeps me awfully busy. But Johnson and the plague and everything else must wait a few minutes this afternoon while I say thank you, my dear Mrs. Hutton. What a splendid time we had at the Players' Club! I always thought clubs were dull, smoky places, where men talked politics and told endless stories all about themselves and their wonderful exploits, but now I see I must have been quite wrong. Letter 76 to Mr. John Hitz, Wrentham, Massachusetts, July ninth, 1897 Teacher and I are going to spend the summer at Wrentham, Massachusetts, with our friends the Chamberlains. I think you remember Mr. Chamberlain, the listener in the Boston transcript. They are dear, kind people. But I know you want to hear about my examinations. I know that you will be glad to hear that I passed all of them successfully. The subjects I offered were elementary and advanced German, French, Latin, English, and Greek and Roman history. It seems almost too good to be true, does it not? All the time I was preparing for the great ordeal, I could not suppress an inward fear and trembling lest I should fail, and now it is an unspeakable relief to know that I have passed the examinations with credit. But what I consider my crown of success is the happiness and pleasure that my victory has brought dear teacher. Indeed, I feel that the success is hers more than mine, for she is my constant inspiration. At the end of September, Miss Sullivan and Miss Keller returned to the Cambridge School, where they remained until early in December. Then the interference of Mr. Gilman resulted in Mrs. Keller's withdrawing Miss Helen and her sister, Miss Mildred, from the school. 
Miss Sullivan and her pupil went to Wrentham, where they worked under Mr. Merton S. Keith, an enthusiastic and skillful teacher. Letter 77 to Mrs. Lawrence Hutton, Wrentham, February 20th, 1898. I resumed my studies soon after your departure, and in a very little while we were working as merrily as if the dreadful experience of a month ago had been but a dream. I cannot tell you how much I enjoy the country. It is so fresh and peaceful and free. I do think I could work all day long without feeling tired if they would let me. There are so many pleasant things to do, not always very easy things. Much of my work in algebra and geometry is hard, but I love it all, especially Greek. Just think I shall soon finish my grammar. Then comes the Iliad. What an inexpressible joy it will be to read about Achilles and Ulysses and Andromache and Athene and the rest of my old friends in their own glorious language. I think Greek is the loveliest language that I know anything about. If it is true that the violin is the most perfect of musical instruments, then Greek is the violin of human thought. We have had some splendid tobogganing this month. Every morning before lesson time, we all go out to the steep hill on the northern shore of the lake near the house and coast for an hour or so. Someone balances the toboggan on the very crest of the hill while we get on, and when we are ready, off we dash down the side of the hill in a headlong rush, and leaping a projection, plunge into a snowdrift and go swimming far across the pond at a tremendous rate. Letter 78 to Mrs. Lawrence Hutton, Wrentham, April 12, 1898. I am glad Mr. Keith is so well pleased with my progress. It is true that algebra and geometry are growing easier all the time, especially algebra, and I have just received books in raised print which will greatly facilitate my work. I find I get on faster and do better work with Mr. Keith than I did in the classes at the Cambridge School, and I think it was well that I gave up that kind of work. At any rate, I have not been idle since I left school. I have accomplished more and been happier than I could have been there. Letter 79 to Mrs. Lawrence Hutton, Wrentham, May 29, 1898. My work goes on bravely. Each day is filled to the brim with hard study, for I am anxious to accomplish as much as possible before I put away my books for the summer vacation. You will be pleased to hear that I did three problems in geometry yesterday without assistance. Mr. Keith and teacher were quite enthusiastic over the achievement, and I must confess I felt somewhat elated myself. Now I feel as if I should succeed in doing something in mathematics, although I cannot see why it is so very important to know that the lines drawn from the extremities of the base of an isosceles triangle to the middle points of the opposite sides are equal. The knowledge doesn't make life any sweeter or happier, does it? On the other hand, when we learn a new word, it is the key to untold treasures. Letter 80 to Charles Dudley Warner Rentham, Massachusetts, June 7, 1898. I am afraid you will conclude that I am not very anxious for a tandem after all, since I have let nearly a week pass without answering your letter in regard to the kind of wheel I should like. 
But really, I have been so constantly occupied with my studies since we returned from New York that I have not had time even to think of the fun it would be to have a bicycle. You see, I am anxious to accomplish as much as possible before the long summer vacation begins. I am glad, though, that it is nearly time to put away my books, for the sunshine and flowers and the lovely lake in front of our house are doing their best to tempt me away from my Greek and mathematics, especially the latter. I am sure the daisies and buttercups have as little use for the science of geometry as I, in spite of the fact that they so beautifully illustrate its principles. But bless me, I mustn't forget the tandem. The truth is, I know very little about bicycles. I have only ridden a sociable, which is very different from the ordinary tandem. The sociable is safer, perhaps, than the tandem, but it is very heavy and awkward, and has a way of taking up the greater part of the road. Besides, I have been told that sociables cost more than other kinds of bicycles. My teacher and other friends think I could ride a Columbia tandem in the country with perfect safety. They also think your suggestion about a fixed handlebar a good one. I ride with a divided skirt, and so does my teacher. But it would be easier for her to mount a man's wheel than for me. So if it could be arranged to have the lady seat behind, I think it would be better. Letter 81 to Miss Caroline Derby Rentham, September 11th, 1898 I am out of doors all the time, rowing, swimming, riding, and doing a multitude of other pleasant things. This morning I rode over twelve miles on my tandem. I rode on a rough road and fell off three or four times and am now awfully lame. But the weather and the scenery were so beautiful and it was such fun to go scooting over the smoother part of the road, I didn't mind the mishaps in the least. I have really learned to swim and dive, after a fashion. I can swim a little underwater and do almost anything I like without fear of getting drowned. Isn't that fine? It is almost no effort for me to row around the lake, no matter how heavy the load may be. So you can well imagine how strong and brown I am. Letter 82 to Mrs. Lawrence Hutton 12 Newberry Street, Boston, October 23, 1898. This is the first opportunity I have had to write to you since we came here last Monday. We have been in such a whirl ever since we decided to come to Boston, it seemed as if we should never get settled. Poor teacher has had her hands full, attending to movers and expressmen and all sorts of people. I wish it were not such a bother to move, especially as we have to do it so often. Mr. Keith comes here at half-past three every day, except Saturday. He says he prefers to come here for the present. I am reading the Iliad and the Aeneid and Cicero, besides doing a lot in geometry and algebra. The Iliad is beautiful with all the truth and grace and simplicity of a wonderfully childlike people, while the Aeneid is more stately and reserved. It is like a beautiful maiden who always lived in a palace, surrounded by a magnificent court, while the Iliad is like a splendid youth who has had the earth for his playground. The weather has been awfully dismal all the week, but today is beautiful and our room floor is flooded with sunlight. By and by, we shall take a little walk in the public gardens. I wish the Rentham Woods were round the corner, 
but alas, they are not, and I shall have to content myself with a stroll in the gardens. Somehow, after the great fields and pastures and lofty pine groves of the country, they seem shut in and conventional. Even the trees seem citified and self-conscious. Indeed, I doubt if they are on speaking terms with their country cousins. Do you know, I cannot help feeling sorry for these trees with all their fashionable airs. They are like the people whom they see every day, who prefer the crowded, noisy city to the quiet and freedom of the country. They do not even suspect how circumscribed their lives are. They look down pityingly on the country folk, who have never had an opportunity to see the great world. Oh my, if they only realized their limitations, they would flee for their lives to the woods and fields. But what nonsense is this? You will think I'm pining away for my beloved Rentham, which is true in one sense and not in another. I do miss Red Farm and the dear ones there dreadfully, but I am not unhappy. I have teacher and my books, and I have the certainty that something sweet and good will come to me in this great city, where human beings struggle so bravely all their lives to wring happiness from cruel circumstances. Anyway, I am glad to have my share in life, whether it be bright or sad. Letter 83 to Mrs. William Thaw Boston, December 6, 1898 my teacher and I had a good laugh over the girls' frolic. How funny they must have looked in their Rough Rider costumes, mounted upon their fiery steeds. Slim would describe them if they were anything like the sawhorses I have seen. What jolly times they must have at blank. I cannot help wishing sometimes that I could have some of the fun that other girls have. How quickly I should lock up all these mighty warriors and hoary sages and impossible heroes, who are now almost my only companions, and dance and sing and frolic like other girls. But I must not waste my time wishing idle wishes, and after all, my ancient friends are very wise and interesting, and I usually enjoy their society very much indeed. It is only once in a great while that I feel discontented and allow myself to wish for things I cannot hope for in this life. But as you know, my heart is usually brimful of happiness. The thought that my dear Heavenly Father is always near, giving me abundantly of all those things which truly enrich life and make it sweet and beautiful, makes every deprivation seem of little moment compared with the countless blessings I enjoy. Letter 84 to Mrs. William Thaw, 12 Newberry Street, Boston, December 19, 1898. I realize now what a selfish, greedy girl I was to ask that my cup of happiness should be filled to overflowing, without stopping to think how many other people's cups were quite empty. I feel heartily ashamed of my thoughtlessness. One of the childish illusions, which it has been hardest for me to get rid of, is that we have only to make our wishes known in order to have them granted. But I am slowly learning that there is not happiness enough in the world for everyone to have all that he wants, and it grieves me to think that I should have forgotten, even for a moment, that I already have more than my share, and that like poor little Oliver Twist I should have asked for more. Letter 85 to Mrs. Lawrence Hutton, 12 Newberry Street, Boston, December 22, 1898. I suppose Mr. Keith writes you the workaday news. 
If so, you know that I have finished all the geometry and nearly all the algebra required for the Harvard examinations, and after Christmas I shall begin a very careful review of both subjects. You will be glad to hear that I enjoy mathematics now. Why, I can do long, complicated quadratic equations in my head quite easily, and it is great fun. I think Mr. Keith is a wonderful teacher, and I feel very grateful to him for having made me see the beauty of mathematics. Next to my own dear teacher, he has done more than anyone else to enrich and broaden my mind. Letter 86 to Mrs. Lawrence Hutton, 12 Newbury Street, Boston, January 17, 1899. Have you seen Kipling's Dreaming True or Kitchener School? It is a very strong poem, and set me dreaming, too. Of course, you have read about the Gordon Memorial College, which the English people are to erect at Khartoum. While I was thinking over the blessings that would come to the people of Egypt through this college, and eventually to England herself, there came into my heart the strong desire that my own dear country should in a similar way convert the terrible loss of her brave sons on the main into a like blessing to the people of Cuba. Would a college at Havana not be the noblest and most enduring monument that could be raised to the brave men of the main, as well as a source of infinite good to all concerned? Imagine entering the Havana harbor and having the pier where the main was anchored on that dreadful night when she was so mysteriously destroyed pointed out to you and being told that the great beautiful building overlooking the spot was the main memorial college erected by the American people and having for its object the education both of Cubans and Spaniards. What a glorious triumph such a monument would be of the best and highest instincts of a Christian nation. In it there would be no suggestion of hatred or revenge, nor a trace of the old-time belief that might makes right. On the other hand, it would be a pledge to the world that we intend to stand by our declaration of war and give Cuba to the Cubans as soon as we have fitted them to assume the duties and responsibilities of a self-governing people. Letter 87 to Mr. John Hitz 12 Newbury Street, Boston, February 3rd, 1899. I have had an exceedingly interesting experience last Monday. A kind friend took me over in the morning to the Boston Art Museum. She had previously obtained permission from General Loring, superintendent of the museum, for me to touch the statues, especially those which represented my old friends in the Iliad and Aeneid. Was that not lovely? While I was there, General Loring himself came in and showed me some of the most beautiful statues, among which were the Venus of Medici, the Minerva of the Parthenon, Diana in her hunting costume, with her hand on the quiver and a doe by her side, and the unfortunate Laocoon and his two little sons, struggling in the fearful coils of two huge serpents and stretching their arms to the skies with heart-rending cries. I also saw Apollo Belvedere. He had just slain the python and was standing by a great pillar of rock, extending his graceful hand in triumph over the terrible snake. Oh, he was simply beautiful. Venus entranced me. She looked as if she had just risen from the foam of the sea, and her loveliness was like a strain of heavenly music. 
I also saw poor Niobe with her youngest child clinging close to her while she implored the cruel goddess not to kill her last darling. I almost cried. It was all so real and tragic. General Loring kindly showed me a copy of one of the wonderful bronze doors of the baptistry of Florence, and I felt of the graceful pillars resting on the backs of fierce lions. So you see, I had a foretaste of the pleasure which I hope someday to have of visiting Florence. My friend said she would sometime show me the copies of the marbles brought away by Lord Elgin from the Parthenon, but somehow I should prefer to see the originals in the place where genius meant them to remain, not only as a hymn of praise to the gods, but also as a monument of the glory of Greece. It really seems wrong to snatch such sacred things away from the sanctuary of the past where they belong. End of section 10